Hey y'all, it's Danielle, and welcome to episode 30 of Ain't No Free Lunch. Yes, the episode between our ages. And if you're wondering which of us is 31, it's Tyking. <laughs> anyway, this week, we talked the athlete protests during the national anthem at the Pan American Games, Jay-Z and the NFL, and round it all off with a tribute to our newest ancestor, Toni Morrison. There's much to discuss and even more to learn. All right, y'all, let's eat. So we're back. What's up, Danielle Green? Yo, I I'm really excited. This is like okay, so we've gone back to back before after our moments of consistency, but this is three times. So round of applause, to us snaps, to us everybody out here. We out here. We trying to bring y'all lunch because y'all know you out here. Your boy Coop loves lunch specials. <laughs> You're so corny. I can't. No, like for real, for real. When I no, was but in, you actually like lunch specials though. Facts. So when I was in college, it was this woman who was, um, she was about three years older. I won't call her name, but she's a, she's still a good friend. I think she's a listener. Ain't no free lunch. I walked up to her on the yard one day. was like, yo, I'm gonna order a pizza. You should come by and we watch the game. And she was like, ew, I'm not used to I mean, at the time, I'm a freshman. I'm super rough around the edges. I'm wearing, Clearly. I'm wearing tall tees and Jesus say- pieces. <laughs> I'm dating myself, y'all. And she was like, I, are you asking me? You telling me? I was like, I'm telling you. She was like, wow, you're kind of cocky freshman. She was like, I'm not used to people talking to me this way. I kind of like it. Ugh. But I don't know if you have enough zeros in your bank account for me. Wow. And I, was I, like, I like the turnaround there. And I like so the turnaround. I was like, don't worry about it. I got it. And you had two pennies rubbed together. And so then she said, well, if we're going to do pizza, it can't be like pizza. It needs to be topo. So Top of the Hill is this restaurant in Chapel Hill. I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to order it. Just make sure you come through. So, of course, I ordered Pizza Hut. I used to make up Pizza Hut coupons back in the day. Wow. You ordered Pizza Hut and she asked for Topo. Whatever Topo is, is not. Wow. The disrespect. At the time, Pizza Hut was. at At the time, Pizza Hut was like incredible. That was my favorite pizza. I'm not. She enjoyed it. So, she enjoyed it. She enjoyed it. Cussed out from me. She judged me for some of the stuff in my closet. So, like, we honestly, we just became really good friends. And she like made me throw away a bunch of stuff in my closet. Um, How did I get started on this story, though? I don't even know how we got here. (laughs) Like, quite honestly, it was such a. Oh, because you said you like lunch specials. Oh yeah, and so I told her I was like, you know what? We can always go out. It's gonna be lunch specials, and you just need to drink water. You are so rude. Oh my gosh. And so, <laughs> so you know, back in my younger days, Danielle, we've talked about this before, but you remember my first date was always coffee or ice cream because I didn't want to make a significant investment if I didn't think that it was worthy of my time. Oh my gosh. So now she wasn't worthy of your time. I'm just saying like, you know, everyone, we don't always mesh. And so it was just a matter of like, hey, I'll get coffee or ice cream and... I'm going to enjoy this cold stone and go about my business. So, yes. I'm glad we met when we did. I'm an advocate for and lunch you had grown. You've I'm, grown as I'm, a person. I mean, God isn't done with me yet. I acknowledge <laughs> that. 
But, uh, you know, hey, these lunch specials. Think about oh, it. L- lunch specials, you always get a significant discount. Like, we aren't I like free lunch. I mean, ain't no free you know, lunch. Ain't the, well, it's, I, one thing that I will learn. Okay, you're right. Ain't no free lunch. But at Stanford, the, I'm not going to lie. There's, like, hella free lunch everywhere all the time. Mm. So they aren't preparing you all for the real world. Not at all. Not okay. at all. I eat free, like, three to four times a week. Okay. It's beautiful. So... Here we are today. What do you have on the menu for us? So we're going to start off with uh, a platter. No, I'm going to leave the, <laughs> the the lunch like analogies alone. You're so cool. One of the things that I was have been really interested in. So you know that I'm working with uh, the Leland Scholars Program. So I help transition first generation low income students here into Stanford. And one of the perks of my job is that I get free meals and, and in the dining hall. And so I go to the dining hall every day, three times a day, because why am I paying for meals if I can get them for free? And they had up on the, they like have this like mega screen or like this big screen where they play television every day or movies or sports or whatever. And the Pan American games were on every single day. Number one, I didn't even know the Pan American games. What like, okay, I didn't know number one, that they were a thing. And apparently they've been, they've been around for a really long time. Apparently? Uh, <laughs> According to Wikipedia, they've been around for okay, quite Neo. some time. Oh my goodness! I didn't know. I didn't know. I'd never. Nobody was like hyped to ever watch the Pan American Games. But anyway, they were super fascinating. They were always on, and so I started watching them every single day, and then like following the medal count and things like that. So I'm sure there's somebody out here who's gonna be like, "Oh, I need to Google what these Pan American Games are because I don't know what they are or if they're a big deal." One of the the like two of really the biggest stories that came out of the Pan American Games were Americans resisting i mean through like the united states lens of course i'm sure there are other really big stories when you look at it and internationally but uh in terms of like the the united states were two athletes who protested during the national anthem yes so like you know for me like i think you know in a lot of ways protest is one of the highest forms of like patriotism right it's holding your your spaces or your country accountable and because you understand and you believe that they can be better sure right why protest if they you don't think that there's possibility for change or that you know this is the best that you can do right but did you hear about what happened yes so the fencer whose name is race which was his really... last name is race yeah no i thought his first name was race i thought his first name was like imboden no i think M- that's M- his last time his last oh. name um team usa fencer race imboden took a knee as a form of silent protest um, during the medal ceremony. And mm-hmm. then he tweeted about it. Like he explained his decision on Twitter and the tweet says, and I quote, we must call for change this week. I am honored to represent team USA at the Pan Am games, taking home gold and bronze. My pride, however, has been cut short by the multiple shortcomings of the country. I hold so dear to my heart, racism, gun control, mistreatment of immigrants and a president who spreads hate are at the top of a long list end quote yeah so he's a fencer like you said and it was a part of the team goal so this guy has racked up serious serious medals over the time over his time as a u.s fencing representative i think it includes 12 gold medals a silver medal two bronze medals and so he He's like an act. He's a real force, but he uh, took a knee. And then there was also just before he took a knee. So he got a lot of attention. But just before he took a knee, there was Gwen Berry. And she is the black woman who won. I believe it was the hammer. Yes, she's a hammer thrower. Yes. 
Yeah, so she she throws the she's yeah she does the hammer throw. She won the gold medal at the uh, the Pan American Games, and she raised her fist at the end of the national anthem during the Pan American Games. What she said about it, so she didn't tweet about it. She just kind of like spoke about it to NBC Sports. Right. And she said, I quote, and I quote, every individual person has their own views of things that are going on. It's in the Constitution, freedom of speech. I have a right to feel what I want to feel. It's no disrespect at all to the country. I want to make that very clear. If anything, I'm doing out of love and respect for people in the country. And then she kind of continues to like go on and just basically say that a lot of things need to be done and said and changed. I'm not trying to start a political war or act like I miss no at all or anything like that. I just know America can do better. End quote. Right. And so the interesting piece of it to me with both, like, I think immediately when she raised her fist, people went back to the 1968 Olympics. That's exactly what I was going to say. But with, uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Right. But then the U.S. Olympic Committee has said that both Barry and Embodden may face repercussions for their protests. Oh, they're probably they're probably definitely going to because there's like a clause within uh, the Pan-American participation. And this, I think it's for like all countries that you uh, will refrain from making any political statements or using any type of moment during the Pan-American game games in, in relationship to politics. So no, that's They're probably most definitely going to affect them. But at the end of the day, I think both of them are supposed to be still going to Tokyo in the Olympics. Right. And so the interesting thing to me about it is that this is my first time hearing about Embodden exercising his rights to protest, but apparently he did so at a World Cup event in Egypt back in 2017. I had no idea. Yeah. So speaking of protests, did you see what happened with Jay-Z in the NFL yesterday? So no. And I know you're going to you're about to educate me because I really don't pay attention to either Jay-Z or the NFL. Can I just really quick aside? Most people are really offended when I say that I don't like Jay-Z. And it's not because I don't think he's a great person or a great philanthropist or well. If he's a great person, it's debatable. I've never met him. But like, I don't think he's like does a lot in terms of philanthropy, blah, 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 or that he's not a great rapper. His voice irritates me. Have I told you that before? I've been hearing you say that for six years, Danielle. It like, it's so dissonant. He sounds like nails on a chalkboard to me. So I don't really follow him closely. And we just finished talking about protests. And I think after Kaepernick, I really stopped paying attention to the NFL, like entirely. So... So I I think that's an interesting segue, right? So I read one article that referred to Jay-Z as Beyonce's husband. Okay, I like this. Continue. And I thought that was really, (laughs) really interesting. But nevertheless, Jay-Z and his agency, Rock Nation, are now partnering with the National Football League on community activism and entertainment ventures tied to league events, including the Super Bowl's halftime show. Interesting. If my memory serves correctly, Jay-Z tried to convince Travis Scott not to perform at this past Super Bowl. And so I think there are a lot of hot takes out there. But I think at the end of the day, Jay-Z was kind of trying to create a supply and demand situation. And, you know, from a street perspective, it kind of looks like Jay-Z was trying to create a monopoly by limiting acts for the NFL and then making the NFL come through him, which is... I mean, that's a that's a power move. But of course, anything that happens in contemporary times, your homegirl 
Tammy Lauren has to say something. You're, you're, wow, wow, wow. So, you're really going to put Tanya Lasagna on me. That's, so that's your girl. She tweeted this, and I quote, Jay-Z will be consulting with the NFL for the Super Bowl halftime show and other performances because apparently the league doesn't hate America and law enforcement officers at a level satisfactory enough for the former drug dealer. End quote. Then, <laughs> before we dig into this, Ernest, my face. Ernest Owens, who's an award-winning journalist, said, and I quote, So the NFL is forming an entertainment and social justice partnership with Jay-Z and his Rock Nation agency. Jay-Z hasn't spoken with Colin Kaepernick about this and yet says he was an inspiration. If this isn't black capitalism exploiting the movement, I don't know what is. End quote. And I... So, so this is the thing. And I don't know if I've ever publicly said this because Colin Kaepernick is coming up in every group chat that I'm in. Everyone that's discussing that everyone's discussing this Jay-Z partnership. This is the thing. Truthfully, I'm going to preface this by saying I respect and acknowledge what Colin Kaepernick did. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Here comes the butt. However, oh, I, so you had to go with however instead of but because I said here comes the but. Basically, <laughs> basically, this is the thing about Colin Kaepernick. I truly believe Colin Kaepernick would have been cut by the San Francisco 49ers the year that he started protesting. And I'll leave it to sports shows to kind of debate his abilities. His, um, But if you look at who was the coach of the San Francisco 49ers, Chip Kelly, who had just been fired by the Philadelphia Eagles and the people that he got rid of in Philadelphia. He got rid of Deshaun Jackson. He said that Deshaun Jackson had gang affiliations. He got rid of LaShawn McCoy, who has been accused multiple times of assaulting women and domestic violence. He got rid of um, I'm missing someone else. I think he got rid of, yeah, he got rid of Michael Vick. So it seems as if anytime someone was outspoken or verbal about things, and some of the players started saying, Chip Kelly is getting rid of us. They brought in the element of race pretty often. And so of I they did. And so I think that Colin Kaepernick was definitely on his chopping block. But when Colin Kaepernick came out with this, with this protest and it, it started getting so much traction, there was no way the 49ers could get rid of him. And so I have a problem with the fact that Kaepernick settled outside of court and how their settlement, how everything was resolved with the NFL. Like, I have a problem with that. Personally, with the Jay-Z thing, I mean... I think Jay-Z is, uh, at this point, he's a businessman. Like, he's an opportunist. And so there's a fine line between, at this juncture, unfortunately, between activism and opportunists. Now, I think a lot of people are blurring those lines. But game recognizes game. Like, Jay-Z isn't out here to, uh, that's not who Jay-Z is. He's not going to be the person that's leading a march or speaking on civil, like, I think he will speak on it, but Jay-Z is more so, his version is to get into the boardroom and use his agency to perpetuate change in a different way. And, and make money for himself. While making money. Um. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know much. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, like, debate with you about Colin Kaepernick be, or his, like, abilities on the on the football field because I really don't know anything about what he did 
on the football field. I watch football like as background noise. So, well, when I do watch it. And so I just feel like in this context, what Ernest Owen says is kind of like you, you call somebody an inspiration for the work that you're doing. This person is alive. You know how to contact this person. You know that this person has an intimate relationship, negative relationship with the NFL. This is something that without honestly Colin Kaepernick, in the conversation or what he did, Jay-Z would not be in the position that he's in right now in terms of having a social justice partnership with the NFL. The NFL very much so would be outside of the orbit of so being required to be a part of like acknowledge social justice or work towards social justice. So in a lot of ways, like you can't just like, it, it seems like, yeah, what he said, if this isn't black capitalism exploiting the movement, I don't know what it is. Especially given like him and Beyonce's like lyrics off of that, uh, the, their most recent uh, album together they put out with the Carters. You know, you have the whole lyric set that said, I said no to the Super Bowl. You need me. I don't need you. Every night we in the end zone. Tell the NFL we in stadiums too. There's this whole like, you know, NFL distancing part in that. And then I just feel like, honestly, if you're going to be moving in these spaces and doing something and acknowledging that someone else is the inspiration and you have ability to contact them and make sure that they are a part of that conversation, it seems a little bit shady to me. Yeah, I'm honestly, I think that probably part of the agreement with Kaepernick and the NFL that settlement is that he won't be part of any of this. And truthfully, the NFL has been extremely lazy with all of but even since the protest, you remember, was it two years ago now? Or maybe it was last year. They announced that they would have, no, it was two years ago. They were going to have, um, they were going to invest in social justice programs. And, you know, like the owner of the Patriots, Robert Kraft, he was like part of it. But it was really just kind of checking the box. I think they ended up donating like a million dollars to. Which is nothing. Right. Nothing. I'm really curious to see where this goes because I think uh, there's an interesting dynamic with people. You know, when I have a group of friends who are who say that the NFL has lost its luster, they refuse to watch it because of the mistreatment of Colin Kaepernick, right? Have a group of friends who are like, I'm going to watch football regardless. Like, this is, as American, it's American pie to me. Uh-uh. And then you have folks who are in the middle who identify as being socially aware, but they also say, hey, like, these are huge red flags. And so I think right now we're in this place where people are saying, well, that's been a few years ago. And the the truth of the matter is, I think if you just boycott the NFL and and not its sponsors, you aren't, I don't think you're really being, you aren't really hitting them in the pocket. And so just saying, I'm not going to watch a game, but you're supporting all of their sponsors, you know, from Budweiser to Papa John's, who I don't support at all, to Gillette, you know, their sponsors are mass, right? Like they have a huge reach. And so how do we kind of navigate these spaces of, I want to be effective and I, I really want to make a stance, but I'm not just saying I'm I'm not watching games because I'm not minimizing anyone's activism, but I question internally, I question how effective you are in your boycott by just not watching games. And Maybe this is something we can talk about in the future, but people have historically misrepresented the Montgomery bus boycott. 
and why it was so effective. And so now it's just, oh, we'll have a boycott, we'll have a march, but they don't really study why the Montgomery bus boycott was so effective. So, I mean, a lot of people don't even know that the Montgomery, like Montgomery, Alabama as a city actually never gave in to the Montgomery bus boycott. Like the act, the city of Montgomery, Alabama never actually integrated the buses as a result of the bus boycott. It came down from a ruling um, in uh, like in court somewhere. I have to go back and look at Talk it. Talk about but, it. Yeah. Talk like, about it. For me, it, people have this idealized understanding of what a boycott is and what it means and how it like is supposed to break down systems. One of you know the Montgomery bus boycott being the what like the boycott that most of us look to um, as something that was incredibly successful was successful, but it wasn't successful in the way that people assume that it was. The city of Montgomery, Alabama, never gave in like not not they just were like okay y'all y'all could walk they tried negotiations negotiations fell through the city was forced to do it by another injunction from a court case um not because they gave in because of the protests i think that even like trans like really smoothly transitions us into why we're like, here today yeah why we're actually here today it's just I, there's always so much going on in terms of like you know protest and racial injustice and just all sorts of different types of moments of equity so i think we should just like definitely hop into to to the topic of today so let's talk about the queen tone tony morrison like may she rest in peace as a as an a now ancestor you know she's an ancestor now you know i had this conversation i think i had this conversation with you when maya angelou transitioned a few years ago and how weird it is to see people that you revered as a kid transition and then you wonder like hey who's to replace them yeah i mean for me like with my angelo like i remember where i was when i found out same thing with tony morrison i mean it only happened a couple of days ago but like i genuinely just felt like these these women these figures were immortal almost you grow with so much admiration for these individuals that it's like maybe they're they're going to be the first among us to like last forever. And I mean, they will through their words, but it, it always it shook me. And, it, and there is that thought immediately afterwards. OK, and then now who's next? And I think that's just part of getting older. But then you kind of start looking around and saying, like, dang, who's the who's the next person that's going to change the world with Rock his or her pen, right? Um, and then and you know, I sit back. They're already writing. Right. And I remember hearing, like, my mother talk about when Dr. King was assassinated. And she said that she remembers her father crying. And she said that she thought that Martin Luther King was the president. Like, <laughs> she said that you That's know actually really cute she said you know, there was this black man who was on tv and always talking there was a bunch of people around she said that's kind of the perception that she had of marley the king she said and it's probably hard for us to understand it now because we have like tv all the time but she said tv was you know like they just had evening news and she said that that was kind of that's what she thought of marley the king at the time so let's talk about queen morrison a little bit yeah she was i mean she was definitely one of the few greats to ever like do it um and like 
also one of the few greats lucky enough to be appreciated while she lived, which is also all too often, you know, we only find like the magic in people's like work and words and lived experiences after they're gone. I feel blessed have been alive while she was alive and known that she was amazing while she was here and that she was like receiving all of the praise that she she deserved, um, you know, and she's got that that big quote for how she like revolutionized a lot of writing and a lot of reading for especially the, you know, the world, but especially for black women. You know, she said, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And she said that over and over again, you know, like I, I, I wanted to read books that centered black women. I wasn't finding them. So I wrote them like what? I just, I just want to fall out. (laughs) That's my favorite Morrison quote, actually. And because it resonates with me in so many different ways, because, you know, as an aspiring, as a working author, that's something that always comes back. Like no one is telling my story and I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. I think that's part of the reason why you are writing the Dangerfield series because mm. representation matters and you thought that yeah. that was necessary. Danny Danger. Chloe Anthony Wofford, known or to the world Wolford? as Wofford, I think. I'm pretty sure oh, it, it looks like looks like Wofford to me, but okay. Go ahead. She was born February 18th, 1931. She's best known as a novelist, essayist, editor, teacher and professor emeritus at Princeton. And she said that she wrote her first novel because she wanted to read it. What? Oh, we stand. <laughs> right. And I, I think it's easy for us to look at that from 2019 perspective. But if you think about this in the fifties and the sixties, like, exactly. And not only as someone, as a woman, but as mm-hmm. a black woman, Oh, yeah. Like black women had no agency at the time. And mm-hmm. Toni Morrison was kind of like, hey, here's my agency. Like, I'm taking it. So there was a woman in the Shakespeare era who dressed as a man and who used a, a male pen name just so she could get her work published and read by other folks. And so but you think about something hundreds of years later and a mm-hmm. black woman like taking her own agency, create taking and creating her own agency mm-hmm. to be a force that's reckoned with like. It's mind blowing. Yeah, creating her her own worlds, and that that's one of the most impressive things that exists about her. Right? Is just like there's so many people who say this doesn't exist, so I'll wait until someone creates it. And she was like, "No, I feel like this is so important, and like black women should be centered. And so because we are not being centered in the ways that I want to see us being centered, because I want to read a story like this, I'm gonna just go ahead and write it. And that's just it's beautiful. But she was also born in Ohio. And a lot of people, her first name is Chloe. And so a lot of people are very like confused about how we get to Toni Morrison because technically her name is is not Toni. But she became Catholic at age 12, I found out. And she took the baptismal name of Anthony, which gave her the nickname of Toni. And then Morrison is the last name of her once husband uh, and the father of her two sons. That, she, uh, But she retained that name. Uh, I don't know if she retained that name in just like as a pen name or in like legally, but she retained it after the divorce. So that's where you get Toni Morrison from. And she, uh, I don't know, she was just great. And I did like a lot of research on her prior to her death, but especially as a result of it on that happened, what, August 5th? 
of this year, uh, this month. <laughs> and so, you know, I definitely want to highlight that, you know, she she went to Howard University with a degree Word. in English in 1953. Yeah. Is that the, is that yeah. the real or the fake HU? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let people who went to the HUs <laughs> determine whether it's a real or a fake one. I'm not hopping in that conversation. You're not gonna give me get me uh, have me having uh, hate mail. Okay. Uh, but she pers- later pursued a master's of arts from Cornell University. But I would absolutely be remiss if I did not, you know, indicate that Soar Tony Morrison was initiated into Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated's Alpha's chapter at Howard University in 1950. So, so you know, I had so to just can like, we pause here for one? Pink and green in there. So for, like, can we pause seconds. here for one second? Like, what are we pausing about? I just I remember. Pausing? Did you see the article a few months ago when the journalist said, yeah, and all these black women were screeching when Kamala oh Harris. Oh my gosh. Yes, I saw it and my skin crawled. This is why you do not send uninformed white people to cover black events. Just stop doing it. Stop doing it. She And she, she <laughs> described it as screeching. As a screech. Wow. Wow. Feelings hurt. While at Howard, Toni Morrison wrote with a group of other writers and began sharing her writings of black of a black girl who longed to have blue eyes. And it and so it began. And then in 1965, she began working as an editor for L.W. Singer, a textbook division of publisher Random House. And two years later, she transferred to Random House in New York City, where she became their first black woman senior editor in the fiction department. For me, this is what's truly like mind blowing, because I think a lot of people, myself included, were just kind of like not. I don't know. I just I thought of her as just like she wrote books and she wrote essays. But like prior to writing. Writing books or publishing anything, not only engaged herself in the work of other writers, but she used her position as the first black woman senior editor in the fiction department of Random House to play this vital role of bringing black literature into the mainstream. I don't know. I just feel like one of my favorite parts about Toni Morrison is just her blackness, her embodied blackness and her dedication to black people, not just through writing, but also through action. You know what I mean? One of the first books she worked on was the groundbreaking contemporary African literature, a collection that was published in 1972. And she just completely paved the way for new generations of African-American authors. Among one of the books that she edited was also like the really famous The Black Book, which was an anthology of writings, illustrations, photographs of black life in the United States from slavery to the 1920s. She's just creating space for black people, not just in her own writing, but in the writings of others. And I think that's so beautiful. And it shows such a lifelong dedication to making sure that, you know, what we have to share is is mainstreamed and is understood as art and not just like, I think I can, I'm going to mis, misquote her, but she said something along the lines of like, you know, um, black literature is treated as this sociology, like something to be studied, but not to be taken seriously. I'm not saying sociology isn't taken seriously, but just like that was the quote that she gave. And I just really feel like she just was like, nah, y'all going to take this serious. So long as I'm a gatekeeper, you're going to take this seriously. So in her first novel, The Blue is I, which was published in 1970, she wrote as a single working mother in the publishing industry. And this is the part that really stood out to me. 
She got up every day at 4 a.m. to write. 4 a.m. What am I doing with my life? She had two whole kids, a whole job. I don't get up at 4 a.m. to write. Do we have a commitment for you to get up at 4 a.m. to write? No, we surely don't have a commitment. Not everybody could be Toni Morrison. I I know my lane. I'm <laughs> I must stick to it. But actually, when The Bluest Eye was published, like it was published. I think a lot of people think it was published to like wide acclaim. It just kind of was quietly published and went on bookshelves. And I mean, it wasn't dragged through the dirt or anything, but it just didn't make waves you know yeah but then the song of solomon was what really brought national attention and awareness to who tony morrison was right yeah because she won the national book credit circle award for the song of solomon which was published in 1977 and that was like but bam i'm here and then her the song of solomon receiving such national acclaim then forced people to like backtrack and read other previous novels like the bluest eye and that brought those acclaim as well kind of crazy she won the pulitzer prize in 1988 and the american book award for beloved she won the pulitzer prize for fiction which was crazy so danielle um Mm -hmm. beloved was snubbed for the national book award right which I didn't know because, like, I got confused between, like, the American Book Award and the National Book Award. And then, yeah. But it was snubbed. I thought it came out to, like, pomp and circumstance and fireworks and parades and marches. Right. So I think in what we can tell you all now, like, just because people may not celebrate your work now doesn't mean that it's not great work, right? But Exactly. Nevertheless, it was snubbed for the National Book Award. But then there were almost 50 black critics including the aforementioned Maya Angelou. They protested their mission in a statement. And two months later, Beloved won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction and Morrison was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, which is like, I think that just kind of is a testament to the power of people using their privilege and their voices to help marginalize and disenfranchise communities. I just, I honestly just feel like Toni Morrison's life like just jumping off of that is just so inspirational in so many ways because I think that we have this culture particularly around social media but also things like Forbes 30 under 30 or whatever those things are just heighten this understanding that if you're not successful by a certain age or you're not immediately successful it's just not coming. Toni Morrison did not publish her first book until she was 39 had two children already had been divorced had been working in the literature industry for a while and it was published to like no acclaim at all and had she just stopped with the bluest eye we might not even know what the what like type of a masterpiece the bluest eye is because it would have gone like might have continued to be like underrated and not acknowledged and i don't know i just i, I don't, be on I don't reserve know reserve like, in libraries exactly i don't know maybe it's just me i think like other people maybe the listeners struggle with this i think we just like have this culture right now that's just if you're not immediately successful right now in everything that you do what's the point right if you're not 30 under 30 40 under 40 for some magazine somewhere you're not doing enough she was making waves and making space like creating space and and like didn't finish her own she started this book in the 1950s did not finish it until 1970 at 39 we all got time to shine you know what i'm saying we all got time it's my time (laughs) (laughs) well in 2012 a complete like it's not all for naught. You can start and write your first book at 39 and still be like the conscious of America. She received the Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama. And, and, and I'm like, so Whoa. happy. I'm so happy that she received her proverbial flowers while she was living, right? Oh, yeah. 
So many people don't. So many people don't. And for so many other things, I just, I don't know. I just think that her work is just so profound. Her, like, just who she is, is like a human is so profound. Like, other than Song of Solomon and the Bluest Eye, you've got Sula, Tar Baby, Jazz, Paradise, God Help the Child, which was her final and 11th book that I think she published in like, what, 2017, maybe? 15? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's been a few years. Home, Mercy, Love. Honestly, most people don't even know that you, Beloved, isn't meant to be read as a standalone novel. I didn't know that. It's not meant, like Toni Morrison has said, it's not meant, it's like a part of a trilogy. So you're supposed to read Beloved, then you're supposed to read, I believe, Jazz, and then you're supposed to read Paradise. Like, it's supposed to be a trilogy, even though, like, the characters are different and, like, the storylines are different, and it's not a typical trilogy. Toni Morrison and I said these are supposed to be read in conjunction like I wrote them to be read together and it's like what just mine uh, I don't know you just learn something new about her every day and and I I don't know I've never read them in conjunction I just knew they were supposed to so maybe that's something that I'll make time for now that she's she's passed you know right and so something that stood out for me I was reading like uh was a profile the new yorker because Mm -hmm. unfortunately when people pass fortunately and unfortunately like we're inundated with like a number of their interviews and profiles over the years and so this one miss morrison said and i quote i can accept the labels because being a black woman writer is not a shallow place but a rich place to write from it doesn't limit my imagination it expands it it's richer than being a white male writer because i know more and i've experienced more end quote just snaps all around for that I don't know I just feel like so many people try to shy away from the black label and she's she's saying like nah call me a black woman writer like that, that I'm cool with that I don't want to just be acknowledged as a writer I don't want to be acknowledged as a woman you know I, mean? I I am those are the things that encompass who I am and that's what makes me amazing right that's like mind blown like you don't have to shy away from like the qualifiers right you're sometimes the qualifiers that people put on us and put on our lives are what make our lives and our work so much richer yeah she's just and like Roxanne Gay who I also stand shout out to Talita and Amber who stand her along with me (laughs) she she wrote like a kind of like a reflection piece about one of the times that she interviewed Toni Morrison and this is like a beautiful beautiful quote and so she said she taught me speaking about Toni Morrison she taught me that you can write about black girls and black women unapologetically and say necessary meaningful things about our lives in a world that often tells us that our lives do not matter she consistently centered black Blackness in her narratives, but not an idealized version of it. And said she wrote for black people in the truest way she could. She was of us and wrote for us. Nuanced, complicated, authentic, and honest representations of our culture, our lives, our triumphs, our sufferings, our failures. She demonstrated the importance of raising our voices and challenging power structures that harm vulnerable peoples, end quote. Like, Roxanne Gay, oh my gosh. Woo! What a, like, an encapsulate, like, she, like, encapsulates who, who Toni Morrison is in a paragraph. Right. And I think that's the important thing to take away from Toni Morrison's work in her life is that beyond phenomenal work, she empowered other black women. Oh, yeah. Other people. Everyone. Really black women that you because she wasn't this politically safe person. No, not at all. She was always speaking out. Like, if it was trash, she was going to let you know. (laughs) And so, you know, she created her own lane in many ways. And, like, she was just true to that, which I think is profound because far too often we try to put ourselves in a box 
folks to try to conform to what we think other folks want to hear instead of just being ourselves, love it or not. Be yourself. You're not unsuccessful if you haven't like won a Nobel Peace Prize by the age of 25. There's just so much that you can learn from her. So like my favorite quote from Maya Angelou is not something that she's like written, but something that she said in a speech. And this is something that I just really carry with me. And it really reminds me like to be my authentic self and to be unapologetically me at all times. (laughs) Because no matter what you do, somebody's going to be angry. So the quote is, uh, and I quote, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says that you have no art so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. Ugh. It's not necessary for you to prove yourself. It's not necessary for you to be anything other than what you are and you don't have to answer anyone's questions or bend to anyone's will like you are enough you know she said you are your greatest thing and we're just so I just feel so blessed and so grateful that I got to got to experience her while she was here but to continue to experience her uh now that she's passed on like what does you know this is a little bit different from the majority of our podcast oh yeah, yeah, yeah. mama green calls them pods yeah <laughs> mom i listened to your pod today so like <laughs> what does this mean today because i don't think tony morrison would approve of us just celebrating her life without some type of challenge no you're right i think that that sometimes like the person who's next comes from the unlikeliest of places you know again people call her the conscious of america right do you i mean i don't think that anybody was checking for in the 19 you know 50s for the next for the next person to be like wildly recognized internationally as as a as a representation of american literature to be a black woman i don't know what what would you challenge i think i just challenge people to do the damn work whatever (laughs) like whatever is on their heart tell us how you really feel don't think about it don't make excuses don't say well someone may call it trash and i think this is a challenge to myself it's a challenge to you it's a challenge to our listeners like we all bring something to the table you know some of us bring the table to the table you understand as we should oh my gosh (laughs) the self size Some of us bring pizza to the table, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, like we're here for a reason. And I think that, you know, we just have to stop living on potential and start. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Know, imagining and like realizing and living in your purpose. So. Yeah. Stop. I like that. Stop living on potential because Toni Morrison could have just secretly written and just been an editor for the rest of her life and still had great impact. But we would have like sorely missed out had she never started writing or like had enough faith in herself to be a writer. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. Okay. Quotable. Okay. Coop. Let me give you, you know, your, your one, two, your, your acknowledgement. Right. About time. Oh my gosh. See, this is why you don't get, I don't give you no credit. So did we eat today? I think so. I think we, we ate in in a different way today but it felt good it felt like cleansing you know what we really should talk about next time though lion king because i went to go see that live action movie and i have i'm upset i I saw it as well like i was about to throw it in when we were talking about beyonce's husband but um i'm upset I mean, I won't. I say mean, it was upset. it was it was good, but we, like we talk they about played. It. Some of we'll it was underwhelming. Mufasa, a lot of it was underwhelming. Rafiki, they played my homeboy to the left. Simba, I'm mad. 
get <laughs> all right y'all thanks for listening until next time my son <laughs>